I'm Jay Caruso, and this is Closer Consideration. What is an institution? Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it three ways. An established organization or corporation, such as a bank or university, especially of a public character. A facility or establishment in which people, such as the sick or needy, live and receive care, typically in a confined setting and often without individual consent. Finally, a significant practice, relationship, or organization in a society or culture. So the definitions are varied. We often think of universities as institutions. Congress as an institution. We sometimes see marriage as an institution. The Boy Scouts is one. The Office of the Presidency is another. There are, as the definition says, mental health institutions. The media, the press as a whole, is an institution, and some of the organizations within the press, such as the New York Times, are also institutions. My guest for this episode is Yuval Levin. He's the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and the Editor-in-Chief of National Affairs, as well as the author of several books, including A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and Campus, and How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. This podcast is brought to you by Ricochet. Go check them out at ricochet.com where you can listen to a number of other podcasts in addition to this one. You can also sign up for membership, which gives you access to the member area, the ability to comment on posts, and at uh, certain levels of membership, you can actually write your own posts as well. So check that out at ricochet.com. You can listen to this podcast at ricochet.com, but you can also subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Okay, our guest is uh, Yuval Levin, and uh, Yuval, thank you for uh, joining me here on Closer Consideration. I appreciate it. Very glad to do it. Thanks for having me. So let's let's go ahead and get right into it. Let me ask you, how would you define the, the, the word institution? Like, what is an institution? Yeah, you know, the term is so broad and so basic that it obviously can be hard to define, and there's a huge range of uh, academic definitions of it. But particularly in thinking about our kind of social situation in America, I would define institutions as the durable forms of our common life. Institutions are the frameworks, the structures of what people do together. So some institutions are organizations. Maybe they have an actual corporate form, a university, a hospital, a, a, a school, civic association. They're technically legally formalized, uh, but some institutions are not technically formalized in that way, but are still absolutely essential forms of common action. The, the family is obviously an institution. It's the first and foremost institution of every society. You could talk about the institution of marriage, a particular tradition, a profession is an institution, the rule of law, that they are durable is one essential thing about them. An institution keeps its shape over time. So it shapes that kind of realm of life that it operates in. When it changes, it changes gradually. But most important, I, I describe institutions as forms of, of common life for a reason. What's distinct about an institution is that it's a form in the deepest sense. It's a structure, a shape that answers to a, a purpose. And so an institution is not just a bunch of people. It's a bunch of people who are organized around a common purpose. 
whose relations to one another are shaped by that purpose and whose ability to work together are a function of the coherence of their being organized together. So if you think about what the family is, it gives you a role as a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a grandparent. And it defines your relationship to other people all around the kind of common task of the flourishing of the members of that family. That's what uh, a profession does for its members. That's what a company does for uh, the people who work for it. And ultimately, institutions are so important because they're those kind of invisible structures of common action that we tend to see right through, but without which our society just can't function. And I would say, finally, they're also essential because by providing a form for our working together, institutions form us. They shape our character, they shape our habits, our expectations. And so every institution, as it does its work, it also shapes the people within it to do that work with a certain kind of integrity. And that's ultimately why we trust or mistrust an institution is out of a sense of whether it forms trustworthy people. So in your book, you, in your book, Time to Build, it opens and it says, we Americans are living through a social crisis. And you have one portion where you say the crisis is evident not only in our political and cultural interactions, but in the personal lives of countless Americans for whom hopelessness or alienation descends into outright despair. What is the importance of strong and trustworthy institutions in a society? And why does that matter to the average person where they may not think about it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true that we don't think about it on a day-to-day basis, particularly we as Americans, because we tend to value individualism, we tend to value individual will and preferences. And so when we think about our society, even when we think it's in trouble, we tend to think that American life is this kind of big open space filled with individuals, and maybe they're having trouble connecting or uh, coming together. And so we talk about building bridges, we talk about uh, leveling playing fields, And those are all ways of saying that we're looking to help people connect. But the trouble is that our social life is not just connected individuals. What we're missing very often in American life now is really a structure uh, for our social engagement, something to belong to, to look to, to believe in, to have confidence in. That requires more than individuals coming together. It requires some structure of social life. And if you think about American life as a big open space, It's not a space filled with individuals, but with these structures. Those are institutions. It's a space filled with institutions. And when they're failing, we often don't really have the vocabulary for diagnosing them. And I think that's really evident now in how we think about that social crisis you mentioned, where we can point to all kinds of symptoms. You know, there's political polarization and there's rising suicide rates. These things don't seem obviously connected to each other. And yet we have a sense that they are. They answer to something that holds them together. And I think that something becomes easier to see when we think in terms of institutional failure, when we think in terms of a loss of faith or trust or confidence in institutions. It's a failure to come together around common purposes. And that has a huge amount to do with why people feel alienated in American life. Well, we have a sense that our society is here for other people, not for us. That's what a failure of institutions looks like. How long do you think that this has been going on? I mean, there is a, obviously, if we go back 50, 60, 70 years, people probably had more trust in the federal government than they do now. More trust in the 
in the world of journalism and world of universities they do now. Is there a is there a common theme or a common time frame for when trust in institutions began to decline? I, I may be wrong, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would say that trust in institutions is probably at its lowest point now overall than it has been in quite some time. Did, was there any kind of catalyst for that, or is it just something that slowly happened over time because of different circumstances? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put the question, because looking to that moment of 50 to 70 years ago, that time of the middle of the 20th century, is kind of what we're naturally inclined to do. And so we say that the America of, say, the late 1950s, early 60s, seemed to have solutions to the kinds of problems we have now, or at least it didn't have these kinds of problems. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, but we have to see that that America was actually quite exceptional. Um, the, 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 the America of the, of the years after World War II is not what our country has normally been. After decades, really, of mobilization in the First World War and then the Depression and then the Second World War, the United States went through a period of consolidation, of coming together where every voice in American life said to every person, be more like everybody else. And you have the rise of mass media. You have the, the growing scale of the American economy. Uh, along with these intense mobilizing pressures that naturally create uh, a, a kind of force for conformity. Um, and you really did have a very strong, self-confident American mainstream in those years. What you also find in those years, though, when you look at American culture, is a, an intense hunger for liberation from conformity. And you see it everywhere in American culture in the late 50s, early 60s, not just on the left, though certainly on the left, but even on the right, if you look at the at the opening editorial of National Review in 1955, which we're used to looking to, uh, if we if we think, if we ever know anything about it, it's that it says that the magazine would stand athwart history yelling stuff. Almost everything else about it was an attack on conformism, was an attack on a kind of bigism. If you look at the uh, at the sermons that Martin Luther King Jr. was giving in the 1950s, before the peak of the civil rights movement, a lot of those were about the danger of bigism, the danger of conformity, let alone the cultural products of that time, the kind of James Dean character that seemed to be everywhere. Um, Americans wanted to be freed from that intense conformity. And that began a period of, of um, fragmentation. Uh, you might call it liberation. You might call it liberalism. It had a cultural face that said more and more individualism. It had an economic face that said more and more choices and options. The left tends to like that cultural side of it. The right tends to like the economic side of it. But these were two sides of the same coin. And you had decades from there until the beginning of the 21st century of growing individualism, growing liberalism, and, uh, and liberalization. And, you know, that did a lot of good. There were a lot of good things about that. Um, it did bring people from the margins of American life into the mainstream, it did give people a lot more choices and options as consumers and created a huge amount of economic dynamism and growth uh, and technological advances. Um, it also had a downside. And in the 21st century, we've really been feeling that downside. And the downside is that fragmentation, that breakdown of a sense of solidarity and common purpose. Um, and among the, among, what it, among the things it's brought to us is a loss of confidence in our major institutions, a sense that uh, we should think about these 
in in the third person and not in the first person. They're not us, they're them. And that has made it harder for Americans to feel like we all belong together. I think it is important to see that that story is the, is the downside of a story that also has an upside, that it is the cost of a, a period of individualism and liberalization that also had a lot of benefits. This is a this is a much compacted story, uh, you know, a sort of version of a case I make in an earlier book of mine called The Fractured Republic, it tries to think through that process uh, it, with a bit of a historical lens. But I think in a lot of ways, what you find is that American life became first fragmented and then polarized, not just politically, but in terms of ways of life, in terms of attitudes. Um, you find that there's a kind of, there's, there's first of all a breakdown of mainstream of the middle, and then you have a clumping at both ends, so that now we really have an up and a down in America, an elite and, uh, and, and, a, and a sort of downscale. And that's true in terms of levels of education, it's true in terms of family formation, it's true in terms of culture, and it's created a very, very stark left-right politics too. Um, you know, I think we've really seen the cost of that, especially in this century. But if you if you look at the decline of confidence in institutions, it begins really at the end of the 1970s, um, and you see it gradually happening through the 80s and 90s, and then really accelerating um, in this century. And let me talking about that left right divide, and I guess this is more of a chicken egg uh, sort of question: Is it? We seem to be a very polarized country, and then there's the the lack of trust in institutions. Is it the? Would you say it's the partisanship and the polarization that would drive distrust in institutions, or is it the other way around? It's the distrust in institutions that has driven partisanship and polarization, or or does it? Is it a mixture of both? Yeah, I think it's very hard to pull these things apart. Um, it does look like the loss of trust, the loss of confidence came first as a historical matter, so that polarization was still relatively low, um, say, at the end of the 1980s. You still had quite a few swing voters. Um, you still had a pretty strong middle in our politics. But confidence in institutions was falling pretty fast by then. Um, and so you might say that came first. But I think it's very hard to separate them and that um, what we think of as a kind of culture war of, of, of elite and populist or uh, in, in some ways, of course, of left and right um, is very much a function of the loss of the middle. The, the polarization into stark opposite ends obviously has a lot to do with the weakening of the middle ground. And I think that that has happened at the same time as a loss of confidence in elites and people in positions of authority in institutions that claim authority for themselves, um, at the same time that we've seen, and for similar reasons, a politics that becomes much more divided um, and where, you know, somebody telling you that they're a Republican tells you quite a lot about them, much more than it told you 30 and 40 years ago. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't have even necessarily known if that meant they were a liberal or a conservative. Uh, you know now. And I think that these things are very hard to pull apart, to separate from each other. It, let's let's look, kind of dig into a little bit about technology and what, what that has done. Not necessarily social media, but technology altogether. I was watching a, 
an older episode of the American version of The Office. And Michael and Dwight were driving and they were using for the first time uh, a GPS. And it told them to make this turn and the turn brought them, and drove, they drove right into a lake. But, but they followed it. They, <laughs> right. they then later on blamed it on the technology because they were trying to advance the technology within the company and they said it was dangerous. So w- where has that been? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when there was no internet. Uh, I, I am, yeah. I'm a product of when I was in my young teens. It was BBSs, you know, modems, mm-hmm. uh, the Commodore sure. 64. And so if I wanted to go out and go to a friend's house and see if he wanted to come out and do something, typically I'd get on my bike and ride over his house and knock on the door. Now everybody just texts everybody, meet me here. Uh, in terms of that, that fractured, uh, the, the fracturization of America that's happened and the issue of people becoming a little bit more isolated, I think, with 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 technology, we've seen that especially in the last year and a half with the pandemic. How has that? How is that, or has it at all contributed to that kind of that the, the distrust of institutions and 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 society overall? Yeah, I I, uh, I I've got childhood memories like that too. I've I've got a Commodore sixty four somewhere in my parents' basement. I'm pretty sure still. Um, and I, you know. It's important to try to avoid, uh, you know, when I was a kid, sort of arguments. But um, I do think that there are ways in which these tools have evolved to serve our desires. And so more than acting as causes of these social changes, they tell us something about what we've wanted. Um, and so I tend to be not a, a technological uh, uh, sort of uh, absolutist and thinking about what caused what and what drove what. And I don't think social media is the reason we are where we are. But I think it tells us something that given the, the kinds of, uh, of technological options put at our disposal by the internet, the fact that we have used them basically to enable the lives of functional loners tells us something. Um, we've used them to make it easier for ourselves to not have to deal with other people in person. So if you think about what a lot of our tools have come to be, um, they, they basically are ways for us to be, to be able to get what we need and want in life without having to spend a lot of time talking to other people. Uh, that's not great, but the fact that we wanted that is in some ways the bigger problem. And I do think that there are a lot of ways in which what we've learned in this period is that communication is not the essence of sociality. That is, we've got a lot more options for communicating with other people now. And I can keep in touch with old friends on Facebook in ways that would have been very, very hard to do before Facebook. But what does that really mean, keep in touch? It doesn't mean I see them. It doesn't mean I spend time with them. It doesn't really mean that I meet their families. It it means that we can communicate. I can see a a photo from, from time to time. We can exchange information. I would say that one thing we've learned, and in some ways we've particularly learned this actually over the last couple of years uh, because of the pandemic, is that there is, we can divide social engagement into communication and communion, right? Exchanging information on the one hand and being together on the other hand. We now have many, many more options for communication, but they tend to keep us from communion. We spend less time with other people in person, physically. 
And it turns out that communication without communion doesn't actually overcome loneliness. It's not actually a way of being social at all. Um, or I wouldn't say it at all. It's not a full way of being social. Right. And it means that although we have all these ways of being in touch, we have fewer ways and less of a habit of actually being connected to other people. And, you know, in thinking about how to take on that problem, pulling back on our use of these technologies seems like it just has to be part of the solution. That's an interesting point. I mean, I, I in no way, and, and, and just going back to what I said, it wasn't, well, in my day, it was like this. I There's people that I've met through social media who are personal friends now, but we we've, we've made that personal Absolutely. connection, like you said, and I'm, I'm sure maybe it's happened to you as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't, I, it's not an entire situation where I'm just entirely down on, on, on technology as a means of communication because it's, it's, it's served a very useful purpose. Uh, I just wondering about the, the idea of wrapping ourselves around social media. It, 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 it it gives certain people, I would think, a kind of comfort level, like you were talking about. It, it's a, it is a, it's a mask for loneliness, but it's not necessarily a cure for loneliness mm-hmm. because you're convinced you have a lot of friends, and and when when it comes down to it, they're online acquaintances. They're not necessarily, they may not, well, they could be, but I would think in a time if you really wanted to be friends, you're going to make that personal connection with them at some point to say, hey, we have to go out to dinner yeah. or we get That's together right. at some point. Um, let me let's let's talk a little bit about some specific areas, and we'll start with uh, journalism. I mean, your work is in in scholarly work, and but you're also a journalist. You're editor in chief of National Affairs, so and you yeah. write, so you're in that business. I'm in that business, and it seems every time you turn around, there's a new poll that has come out showing trust in journalism going lower and lower, and uh, you. Obviously, there's complaints on either side of the spectrum. And it kind of takes me back to something that Arthur Brooks had said in an interview with Politico several years ago. And he was talking about how we're governed by the extremes. He said you have 15% on one side, 15% on the other, and then 70% in the middle who don't hate each other. That's what he said. Uh, Or he called it the fringes, the 15% were the fringes. And you probably see that with media as well. If you talk to somebody on the, the, the right and probably tell you that the media is incredibly biased towards conservatives and Republicans, but if you talk to somebody on the left, they would tell you the, the opposite. They would say the media is entirely biased against Democrats and, and the left. Overall, though, the trust level has gone down, regardless of what you think of bias or anything like that. How is that? Where do you see... The, where would that problem have begun? And what if you were to kind of give an overall assessment of the state of journalism and why you think people might be distrustful? What, what would be what would be your view on that? How would you t- how would you approach that if somebody asked you? You know, as I, I, think as I am, is <laughs> in fact somebody has yes. Uh, journalism it, it offers us a useful lens to thinking about the professions as institutions. Journalism, in one sense, is a profession. Um, and when we trust it, we, we trust it for the set of reasons for which we normally trust professions, which is it seems to impose an ethic, a set of rules, a way of behaving on, on the people in it. And the purpose of that ethic is to engender trust. So if you think about some other profession, 
you know, I trust my accountant, not just because he seems to understand the tax rules, but because there are things an accountant would never do. An accountant isn't going to lie and put his name to made up numbers. Um, and that's important. That's, that's, that's a key reason to have confidence in that person. There are things a lawyer wouldn't do. There are things a doctor or a priest wouldn't do. And when they do, we know that that is a corruption of their responsibility. They, there is clearly a standard to which they're supposed to live up. Um, th that's true of journalism, too. There's a standard, and the standard has to do with verification, with editing, with a sense that before they say something, they've at least gone through some process that tries to verify that it's truthful. It's like scientists in the same way. We trust them because of the process they have to go through before they'll say something to us. But the problem we've seen in journalism, uh, or at least one important problem we've seen, is also something we see on a different scale in many, many other institutions, which is a transformation of people's understanding of the institution from a mold of their behavior and character into a platform for themselves as individuals. So that rather than saying, I work within a journalistic institution and it shapes what I can and can't do, you look at that institution as a stage for yourself to stand on, build your own brand, build your own following. If you check in on Twitter right now, you'd find a lot of journalists who work for all kinds of big name places, building their own personal following and essentially using those places, the Washington Post, the New York Times, or whatever it is, um, as a place to stand and be seen. And that transformation from mold into platform is something that you see everywhere. You see it in politics. It's how members of Congress think about Congress. Uh, you see it in the university. You see it in American religion. And you very much see it in the professions. In some ways, it is worst of all in journalism. And when that happens, what you have is the professional stepping out of the bounds, the constrictions of the profession, and instead standing out there on his own or her own and demanding to be believed and taken seriously. And we just don't have as strong a reason to trust that person as we would if it seemed to us that they were constricted and constrained by the profession. I think that's one important thing that's happened to undermine our confidence in that institution. There's another thing to see, though, and that's a, a, a transformation of the economic incentives that confront journalists, very much related to this, where for most of the 20th century, journalistic institutions survived economically by selling advertising to advertisers who wanted as broad an audience as possible. If you're selling classified ads in a major city, you're trying to reach everybody. Um, if you're selling uh, TV ads on ABC News in 1970, you're selling the advertiser is a huge, broad audience. And that means you don't want to turn people off. You want to appeal to Republicans and Democrats, men and women, young and old, have as big an audience as possible. Today, the economic incentives in journalism, as in so much of the rest of our economy, are much more fragmented and focused so that what you offer advertisers is not a broad audience, some small part of which might be interested in buying your shoes, but a very narrow audience, a lot of which is going to like what you're selling. You're offering them a kind of demographic picture of who our readers or, or viewers are. We know who they are, and that's why we think that they'll buy your product. That means that you're reaching a much narrower slice of the public, and you reach those people not by offering a broad picture that everyone would like, but by offering exactly what those people want to hear. And that means that if you're the Washington Post now, 
you want to reach a specific slice of, of the country. And it's for the post, generally a left-wing slice that wants to get worked up about how bad Republicans are. If you're Fox News, you need to reach those kind of 65 and over white conservatives who are going to be interested in that ad about why you should buy gold. And the way to get them interested is Tucker Carlson. And so journalists have lost the incentive to reach as broad an audience as possible. And their incentive now is to focus on narrow casting. I think these things are very much connected to each other. And they, they both point in the direction of our institutions becoming platforms for, uh, for performative virtue, performative outrage in the culture war. And so it's a little overdetermined, that loss of trust, but I think it's driven by at least these two factors. Do you think the we're seeing kind of an explosion in the subscription model uh, for journalism? And do you think that that is a positive sign or is it, a, is, does, is it going to matter? Uh, it's a situation in which then the publication doesn't then have to rely on advertising dollars for revenue streams. Is that, yeah. is that a good thing it, or a bad thing? I think there's certainly a, a positive aspect to it. Again, as you say, not having to rely on finding eyeballs for the advertiser means that uh, it doesn't all have to be clickbait. On the other hand, you are reliant on someone. You're reliant on your subscribers. Right. And that means you want to give them what they want. And again, that means you know, telling people what they want to hear um, can be a great business model, but it's not a great journalism model. And so... Uh, there is still an element of that kind of problem where you know who your subscribers are and you don't want to get sideways of them because they might leave. Um, that obviously is a kind of pressure that uh, that serious journalism can have trouble with. What about the the more the more major platforms? I mean, I, th- I I tend to think that the reach of cable news, for example, is is overstated. Everyone yeah, will talk about the Fox News will say, you know, they'll say Fox is, oh, Tucker had three million people. Well, that's still, I think, mm-hmm. Lester Holt, two and a half times more people will watch him on NBC Nightly News than will watch Tucker Carlson. Yeah. And yet it seems to me that there's a situation where they feel like they have to kind of extend the boundaries a little bit of where they go. If you look at CNN, CNN, for example, does <laughs> You don't have to even watch Fox News if you want to know what's happening on Fox News. You could just watch a lot of CNN. Uh, though I do, I do think they have some good journalists there, but I do think that it's also kind of like this this bubble that is formed, and so as a result, they nearly push harder to convince you that what they're telling you is accurate, and at the same time, still shutting people out. From believing it. So you have people that are, yeah. aren't going to watch CNN at all and people who aren't going to watch Fox News at all, except on those two stations, them telling you the, what the other is doing and why you shouldn't pay attention to them. So where is there a way that you could see out of this that could sit there and say, OK, I, I'm going to tune into this show on Tuesday night because I know I'm just going to get what I what I should hear, not what they want me to hear. Or is that kind of is that something that's a lost cause at this point and we have to deal with it as it is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there's, I, 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 I agree with the, with the two elements you lay out there where first of all, we certainly overestimate the viewership. And so the direct influence of cable news, 3 million people, which is a great night for Fox uh, is 1% of the population. And so that's just one in a hundred Americans. And that's not a large audience. 
uh, yet at the same time, um, there's no doubt that that Fox, on the one hand, or uh, or CNN or MSNBC, and the other, um, do have enormous influence over the the political culture of a portion of the country. And I think the reason for that is that those aren't just any three million people. It's a little bit like Twitter. Twitter is actually quite small, um, but it's where you find the the elite of our political and media and culture kind of hanging out and talking to each other. And so that means that what happens there is unusually influential. I would say, in my experience, politicians on the right are very, very influenced by what's on Fox. They care a lot about what's said about them, about what subjects are taken up. They want to make sure that they're part of that story. And that's because some of their most engaged voters are, uh, are, are getting their sense of what's going on in America from watching Fox. And it's the same on the left with the more left-leaning networks. And so they're influential, even if they're not enormous. Um, I, I would say to the question of whether there's a way out of this, the only answer, the only way out, it seems to me, can be driven by by consumer pressure, um, and I don't think that it can be a mass transformation of American journalism. But I think that just as there are niches for people who just want to hear their views affirmed and reaffirmed in more and more angry tones as the evening progresses from one show to another, there are also there's also a niche for some people who want to get something more like the news. Um, just a basic sense of what happened in the world today. Um, and, you know, that's not going to be the kind of audience that, uh, that NBC and ABC and CBS had in 1969. It's not going to be two-thirds of the country sitting down and watching the same thing at the same time. We are just a fragmented culture now, and there isn't anything like that on any front. But I think that more of a consumer demand for more straightforward journalism could produce more straightforward journalism um, than we than we have now. And the sense now is that there's just not much of a demand for that. I think there could be more than there is. Um, and I do think in general that w- what you mentioned from Arthur Brooks is, is basically right, that most Americans are not in the left conversation or in the right conversation. Um, and, you know, th- th- that means that we shouldn't overestimate how significant what happens within those bubbles really is. And they are really bubbles. We sometimes think of our political culture as these two parties constantly at each other's throats. But I don't think that's actually right at all. What you have are two parties, each of which has withdrawn into its own space to talk about the other. And so a lot is said about the left on the right. A lot is said about the right on the left. Not a lot is said between the left and the right to one another. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, that's in part because the, the, the real arenas of engagement where they could have to deal with each other and, and fight or bargain or hear each other out, those arenas are being closed down throughout our culture, whether that's Congress, which less and less functions uh, in that way and instead is more of a, of a platform for people to talk about the other party, whether it's the university where less and less do we see real engagement with ideas that make you uncomfortable on campus um, or, or, or whether it's the kinds of cultural arenas where you just might encounter people you disagree with. Uh, we have fewer and fewer opportunities to do that now. And so I think we do not live in a culture of, of, of war, of hostile engagement 
we live in a culture that's defined by a series of, of bubbles that very rarely touch one another. And you know, to address that, we need to think about engagement in a different way. And, and your, your mention of the university brings me to a question about that. As, as part of this discussion, uh, in your book you wrote about uh, the university and you say that they, the, there's a balance to several purposes, and you can expand upon that, but I'm just going to touch on the third one, which you said is the university is there uh, to expose a rising generation to the deepest and best of the wisdom of our civilization and to enable a search for the truth wherever it leads, without regard for economic or socio-political utility. And one of the things, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it seems in your book is that you're saying that there seems to be a, a, uh, a growing or has it, it's a continually rising search for social justice that is crowding out that search for truth. That people are sometimes afraid of the truth, and so it, it, they, this is why we have safe spaces in universities and and there's trigger words and trigger warnings and all these other kinds of things because at the university level, the college and university level is where people should really begin to engage in critical thinking. And and to to do that, you're sometimes going to have to be exposed to ideas and viewpoints that you don't like. And it, it seems to me that there's a, if you were to Again, we go back to this left and right divide. If you talk to conservatives, you would think that pretty much every college and university across the United States is just nothing but a hotbed of left-wing activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a hardly there's a lot of distrust there. What is your take on that? And, and how, again, does the university system begin to, which I, I, I think it's fair that there's a lot of distrust in the university system in terms of, they charge an exorbitant amount of money for people to go there, uh, and 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 there is there are these areas where people have been afraid to speak out. And this is not just the students. Now we have the faculty who are yeah. uh, facing retribution simply because they espouse something that somebody doesn't like. Yeah, I, 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 I'm very concerned about the condition of the universities. It's a big part of the argument of the book, but not in exactly the way that is, I think, most commonly heard on the right. And that's because I think what's required is a fight for the university, not against it. I think we need universities. We need them for a variety of ends, as you suggest. You know, they, they provide people with the skills they need uh, to succeed in the American economy, or at least in large parts of it now. Um, they, they, they provide people with an arena where they can be shaped and formed and where they can engage in trying to change the country. I don't think that the, uh, I I don't think that social activism is entirely alien to the purpose of the university. It's always been part of what universities have been for, uh, from the very beginning. I mean, universities in the West were formed as seminaries. They were formed as places where men of religion would be shaped to then go and shape the larger society. That's certainly true in America, where Harvard and Yale, our first two universities, started out really with the aim of transforming the larger society. And in some ways, that's still what they're trying to do. Um, And they're also, as you say, places where we can search for truth in something that looks more like liberal education. The key is that all of these things have to be done through teaching and learning. The mode, the the means of academic action has got to be teaching and learning, the pursuit of the truth or of knowledge through teaching and learning. 
whether your goal is to give people skills or to change society or to find the true and the beautiful, you have to do it by seeking after knowledge, by teaching and learning. And a lot of what we see now in the university is a denial of the capacity for teaching and learning. And it's driven very much by the sense that we would not want people to be exposed to something that isn't what they already think, which is the very same logic as we've talked about that deforms journalism, the very same logic that makes it hard for people to hear one another and to think that we all want to live in echo chambers where we only hear ourselves reaffirmed. There's a sense in, in university life now, too, that it's somehow dangerous for students to be exposed to things that aren't what they already think. That's just, when you put it that way, it's obviously ridiculous, right? But, but without putting it that way, I think there are large swaths of the academic world that now live that way. Now, it's not everywhere, and it's not everything. And it, it, you, you certainly can still get uh, a pretty good education in a lot of American universities, especially if what you're looking for are skills to succeed in the economy. Uh, there are a lot of places that are by no means just cesspools. And I think we on the right should be careful in how we characterize the university. Agreed. But there is also no question that there is a struggle for the soul of the American Academy that is about whether this is going to be a place where we pursue knowledge through teaching and learning. And I think the right has got to be engaged in that fight and in a way that, that takes account of the purpose of the university. And I would say this too, the purpose of the university is not free speech. And it's very important for us to remember that even though we are answering people who are trying to constrain our ability to express our views, we're not doing that in the name of free speech. The university is not just a place where anybody should say anything, right? That's what everything is becoming, is there's just a platform for expression. And so we incline to say, well, the university should just let us say whatever we want. The university exists to advance the search for knowledge through teaching and learning. And it's when it prevents that from happening that we have to fight to open up that space. But that means we're fighting for the search for truth. And that's much better than free speech. That's much more than free speech. And it's much more necessary to our society than just free speech. And so I think we have to have an elevated sense of what the institution is for, including one that's rooted in the ideal of liberal education, of really finding what is true. Um, and that if we put it that way to ourselves and to others, we have a better chance of appealing to students um, who know that they are living in a, in a kind of constricted and shallow institution that could be better than it is, in appealing to some faculty who might not be bought into the social justice transformation of the university, in appealing to some administrators, although I mostly despair of administrators. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that that offers us a better chance of defending the institution by really seeing what it's for. Let's turn to the government. And, and we'll start with, just to give you an example, I, I, and I think you, you, you might agree with this, if you were a Hillary Clinton supporter in November of 2016, you probably had little faith or little trust in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, by the end of, say, 2019, it, that, that was probably flipped around. And if you were a Donald Trump supporter, you probably had little faith in the Federal Bureau of the FBI than if you were a Hillary supporter. Uh, that Going back to, and, and we'll get into a broader discussion about the government here in a moment, but getting back to the, the issue of, the, of partisanship, and the distrust in institutions. 
is do you think a lot of it do you or do you think any of it for that matter is performative that it's more I going to say that I distrust this institution simply because they did something to somebody who I like politically. So they investigated this person and that's bad. They investigated that person over there, but that's good. Uh, and, and there's really no basis for their distrust other than it's just a political, mm-hmm. uh, political calculation at that time. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment? Well, look, I think in, in, a, in a funny way, that's the kind of mistrust that we should aim for. That is, institutions should be essentially objective, and they should sometimes be seen as uh, favoring one side and sometimes the other, because what they're doing is always the same thing, and uh, partisans will have different views of them at different times. I don't really think that's the case with the FBI. I mean, I think that there really are ways in which the FBI has been politicized in some pretty dangerous ways. Mm-hmm so that the, the loss of trust does have to do with a, a certain amount of breaking the professional bounds of what the institution is supposed to be, of what the, the objective, disinterested uh, pursuit of, of justice should look like. Um, I think that it has been extremely difficult for any of our institutions to avoid the kind of politicization that, we, that, that, that has swept over the kind of culture war that shaped American society over the past 25 years. And you certainly see in some of the private texts and email exchanges among FBI agents that uh, got swept into the, the scandals mm-hmm. that they're not immune to these things, that they, that they do talk to one another in ways that suggest that what they're doing is surely shaped to some extent by some degree of partisanship. Right. Um, th- that's a problem. And it's that, you know, that's a, that's a way that institutions lose the trust of the larger public. But I think that it is very important that we understand that these institutions are full of human beings. They always are. And we should look to see whether they are striving for some kind of institutional responsibility that stands above politics, even if they don't always achieve it. I do think there's a case to be made for the FBI on that front, but that that shouldn't blind us to the instances where the institution fails to live up to its own standards and has to be held up to those. And so now, talking about the, the, the government as a whole, we could start with, with we could talk about Congress here for, for a few minutes. Uh, I think you would agree that Congress has uh, given away more of its power to the executive branch over the last 30, 40 years than it has in any time previous to that. And I think on purpose, I think that, and this is my view, that members of Congress would rather the executive do something so that they could turn around and complain about it as opposed to actually doing something about it, which is to pass legislation. There are a lot. Uh, you went back to, to we talked about journalism, where you're saying that people are using journalism for, as a platform. But I think there's also people using Congress as a platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very much so. Matt, Matt Gates said it. He, he admitted it bluntly. He said, if you're not, he said, if you're, if you're not making the news, you're not in the news, you're not governing. Uh, that was what he said about his work, <clears throat> if that's what you want to call it. AOC has largely built her reputation as somebody who is a social media uh, star. There's nothing that she can point to in her legislative records of any kind of accomplishments in her two years that she's been there. So how does – is there a way and, – and, and, and give, us, give us your thoughts on – give me your thoughts on, the, on, on Congress and how that institution – because every time – 
Oh, we know they have a re-election rate of something like 96 or 97 percent. So as much as people say they hate Congress, they continue to re-elect mm-hmm. the same people. But overall, people have a very low opinion of Congress, and I think there is a lot less trust, particularly when you see what we've run up against here just in the last. It's always with the continuing resolutions and the debt fights, and maybe I'm missing something, but I don't seem to remember that. Even during the Clinton years, there always seemed to be, you know, yeah. there was a shutdown, but yet after a while they would get together and they would actually construct an actual budget and pass appropriations bills and not rely on continuing resolutions. So what do you see as, as, the, as the major driver of that? And is there any way, and this could be a long, complicated answer, maybe we may not have <laughs> enough time to, to discuss it here, but what, is there any way to, that Congress can sit there and and get gain some trust back in uh, uh, for themselves as an institution. I think Congress is, is probably the most obvious and clear example of an institution that has been transformed from a mold of its members into a platform for them. That is that a lot of people now, and certainly I agree with you that people like AOC or Matt Gates are the most prominent examples, but a lot of members basically think of Congress as a platform for themselves to build their personal brands. They're much less shaped by even membership in a party, let alone their part in one of the institutions of our, of our constitutional system. And they see themselves instead as independent operators and see Congress as a way to get a bigger social media following, to get a better time slot on cable news or talk radio. And what they do is essentially function as commentators. They talk about politics, which is what they take their voters to want to hear. Their voters want to send somebody to Washington who will say in public what those voters say when they yell it to television. And that's what a lot of, of members of Congress now end up doing with their time. What they don't want to do is take responsibility for the direction of our government, which is the role of Congress. Congress is the first branch, not by coincidence. It is meant to be the moving force, the engine of American political life at the national level. And that means members have to take responsibility, take hard votes, uh, take ownership of what they take to be the right direction for public policy. A lot of members today, because they want to be performers, they don't want to do that. And they leave it to other institutions. So when we on the right complain about the growth of the administrative state or activist judges, what we're actually looking at a lot of the time is a willfully uh, underperforming Congress that leaves a vacuum that is then filled by these other institutions. Um, and if you if you spend time in Congress, as, as, as for my sins I do in my day job quite a bit, um, if you go to a congressional hearing, what you'll find now is not, generally speaking, members talking to each other or even to a witness. What you'll find is members talking to a camera. Uh, and producing YouTube clips that they can use later when they run for office, and literally using the institution as a platform. Uh, The question of what can be done about this is no simple matter, right? They're responding to a lot of incentives in our culture, um, in the media, and in the political system itself. And they're not, these aren't stupid people, on the contrary. They're ambitious, intelligent people, and they're responding to incentives in order to succeed. And what, what has to change in Congress is those incentives. Those incentives have got to change in ways that would better reward actual legislative work. I think there are some ways to do that. 
changing the character of the relationship between members and leaders in both houses. Both houses now are very, very much run by the party leaders, where four people rather than 535 basically run the institution. What happens in committees barely matters at all, and that's what members do most of the time. And that could change. You could give committees more control over what happens on the floor. Um, you could break up the budget process into smaller pieces so that what members do day to day could matter more. The trouble with these reforms, and there's a lot of them, there are a lot of people who've come up with interesting ideas about how to improve the system. The trouble with them is that in order for them to happen, members of Congress would need to want them to happen. Right. Congress has the power. It has the power to push back the president and the courts. It has the power to reassert itself. What it doesn't have is the will. And that means that there needs to be a change of expectations on the part of voters. So that to me, this looks really like an educational project, a civic educational project about why our system should be understood as having Congress at its center. And I would say, frankly, especially that Congress is a way to solve the problem we have now in America, which is how can we live with one another given our differences, our diversity, our divisions? The answer to that question is Congress. Congress resolves differences through negotiation and bargaining and competition. And that's how you solve these kinds of deep differences without violence. Um, and we need to see that what's required precisely in order to address the kind of social crisis that we started with, the fact of our division, what's required in our national politics is a more functional Congress. I think for more voters to see that and demand it and expect it, is really the only way that you could imagine Congress changing for the better. All right. So as as we wrap up here, I just want to ask you one final question related to our conversation here. Now we can I can't ask you what is the solution and 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 do that within yeah. the next four minutes. Uh, but if you were to, if you could give somebody some advice, so let let's say you. you you start a, a, a garden you're, and, and you don't have any plants. You have to start with a seed. And so you'd plant a seed and hopefully that would turn into something bigger. And, and you, in time you'd have, you'd have fruit or vegetables or whatever it is that you're growing. So if you could give your advice to someone that could say, how do we, how do we turn the ship around in terms of trust in our institutions? What could be that seed that somebody could plant mm-hmm. that could, that could help? What would you, what would you suggest? I think that seed is a question. And the question is, given my role here, how should I behave? That is a question that all of us should be asking all the time. Not just what do I want, not just how do I want to be seen, but given the role that I have here as a, as a parent or a neighbor or a member of this church or a worker, an employer, a congressman, president of the United States, given my role, how should I behave? It's a, it's a, it's a simple question, and yet... I think could be an absolutely transformational one in the moment we're living in now. It's a question that I I would bet that the people who most drive you crazy in American life and who you really think are part of the problem are people who obviously fail to ask that question when they obviously should have asked it. You think, how could they have done that? Well, they did that because they did not ask themselves, given the role that I have, what obligations do I have? And that the people that you most look up to in American life today seem to somehow be immune to the insanity of the moment are people who obviously ask that question and who say, well, given the role that I have, I should behave like this and not like that. We each can ask ourselves that question. We can also expect that people with power, that people with responsibility, that people in positions 
to make a difference, ask themselves that question. That's not the answer. That's a beginning, right? That's not a substitute for institutional change. And I do think we need institutional change. The problem we have is not that people don't trust institutions. It's that institutions are not trustworthy enough. But if we ask ourselves how to do that, how to build that trust that's needed, you can come up with all kinds of complicated sociological and political and cultural answers. But ultimately, it has to begin by the people who inhabit our institutions trying to be a little bit more trustworthy. And we are those people. So it has to start with us asking that kind of question. That's great. Yuval Levin, thank you so much for being on Closer Consideration. Thank you. Thank you.